This week on the Backtable Podcast. Our mission is to become the world's partner for surgical training. So there's the verticals we spoke about. Those verticals are low, medium, high fidelity in any one of the horizontals. So we're already in laparoscopic training and, and hysteroscopy. Those are our current verticals. Our plan is to be in every single vertical. We, we, we're not shy about saying that. Okay. Um, that's orthopedics, it's ENT, it's neurosurgery, it's vascular surgery. For vascular and endovascular, watch this space. There could be some exciting stuff coming. But yeah, a- absolutely. We're, we're not shy about saying our plan is to recreate and take our, our differentiated approach of headset-free augmented reality, high-fidelity training, which sits atop our vertical, and then the rest of our vertical and pull that down the horizontal into different specialties. So yeah, that's that's our that's our plan over the next couple of years. Hey everyone and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. This is Aaron Fritz as your co-host this week. I'm very honored and excited to uh, have a co-host helping out today, uh, Deanna Velasquez-Pimentel. Deanna, uh, DVP, as we call you. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to Backtable Innovation. My name's Deanna. I'm a physician from London. We'll be joining Backtable to bring more European voices to the show. I'm very excited for this first episode. Today on Backtable Innovation, we have Elliot Street. Elliot's a physician entrepreneur. CEO and founder of Innovus. Innovus builds low-cost surgical simulators to improve surgical care and connect training. Uh, we're going to talk to Elliot about how he built Innovus from the ground up, uh, navigating the immense growth the company has seen in the last year, and the role of augmented reality in surgical training. So Elliot, let's jump in. Rumor has it that you started Innovus from your bedroom when you were a medical student. Is that true? Yeah, that is true. First of all, uh, I'd like to say thanks very much, guys, for, for having me on the, the podcast. Really appreciate it. You forward to talking with you both today. So yeah, that, that is true. I didn't do it alone. That's probably the first and most important thing to say. So I've got a, I've got a technical co-founder. He's still my CTO today, 10 years in. So that, that, that speaks volumes as to, uh, to the strength of our, our relationship as co-founders. But yeah, going, going back to why we started this business and where we started it. I was a medical student looking at a surgical career coming from a sporting background, realizing that we should probably be training our surgeons a little bit more like we train as elite athletes, which we weren't doing. That was number one. And number two, that as surgeons, we were primarily focusing our training on the patient bedside. So the early learning curve was at the patient bedside. And I was looking at this thinking, why have we not shifted that away from the patients into a simulated environment, safer for the patients, better for the surgeons, allows the surgeons to train like elite athletes. And so as a couple of 23-year-olds in a bedroom with no money, no contacts and no knowledge, we thought we were best placed to completely revolutionize uh, how we deliver surgical training across the globe. Elliot, real quick, what, what year were you guys in, in, or were you in medical school at that time? Yeah, so I was in fourth year and, and, and this had been percolating for a while. I'll go back a, I'll go back a little bit. Um, I mean, yeah. I could talk about just our origin story all day. Yeah. But let me, let me, let me take a step back pre-medical school. I'm not yeah. your classic medic. I was, I was running hustles in the playground throughout whole of high school. I had like five businesses at high school. So did my co-founder. He, he's, he's very technically minded, but he, he also did exactly the same, had a load of hustles going and there's no medics anywhere in my family, no physicians in my family. I was lucky to get coached into medical school by the surgeons and doctors at my tennis club where I played as a, as a junior. And when I went to medical school, I, I went there going, well, I'm pretty sure I'm going to enjoy this. And, and by the way, I did. I loved it. I loved every second of, of 
being not only at medical school, but looking after patients when I was a physician as well. But I always went there going, well, there's probably a lot of other things I could potentially do and use some of these other skill sets I'm pretty sure I've got to help impact things. So I'd started thinking about this really early at medical school. A couple of years in, I was thinking, how can I, how can I potentially make a change and combine these skills? And once I'd started looking at my surgical career path and start building my portfolio and thinking about how I was going to train and be the best possible surgeon, it started becoming very apparent that there was an opportunity here for us. Real, real quick, what was your favorite or maybe most colorful or creative hustle that you had on the playground or in high school? Selling Mars bars. <laughs> well, there, was, there were two. I had, a, I had a poker game on the bus. I had a 45-minute bus journey to, to school. I lived out in, the, it's sort of out in the sticks in the countryside, so had a poker game on the bus. That's probably all I will say about the poker game. <laughs> uh, there was a poker game on the bus, uh, not particularly high stakes, but it was, <laughs> but it was lucrative. It certainly, it certainly um, paid for my lunch uh, and, and my dinners for some time there. Um, there and I had a couple of other hustles. The other one was, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd get my parents to drive me to the cash and carry, bulk buy sweets, and then I was, I was selling those in the playground. But what would happen is I'd sell out. So what I would do is I, I was very friendly with all the teachers because I was, I was. One of the one of the good kids doing all the right things uh, with the with the grades. So I'd I'd finish all my work and I'd just say, look, guys, can I can I leave early? I've got to go and I've got to go into tennis practice. So I'd leave early at the end of the day. I'd run into town. I've sold all my stock at lunchtime at this point in time. Run into town. I'd buy all of the sweets from the corner shop in town. I'd come back to the bus stop, and then while we were waiting for all our buses, I'd uh, I'd sell some more stock. So um, yeah, the, a, 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 a true hustler from a, a young age. Yeah. <laughs> You must have raked in the good amount to get to, to that. I mean, to run all the way to town, get, buy them out, and bring it back. I mean, yeah, it was great. The market was the market was brilliant. And look, I, I used that to fund my I used that to fund my my tennis from a, from an early age, from about fourteen onwards. I was funding my own my own tennis career. I was paying for my own coaching. I was paying for my own travel. I was working as a tennis coach as well. I also worked as what I call a sub aqua stainless steel coordinator. So I was washing pots in a restaurant. It, I just I just ground it out from a from an early age. That's just town wide. That's how nice. you're wired, yeah. You've mentioned um, tennis and being an athlete. What 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 do you think we can bring from being an elite athlete to surgical training? Yeah, well, well, I mean, the the main transition was I realised I was very injury prone, and although I was quite good at tennis in the UK, um, in the grand scheme of things, I certainly wasn't going to end up as one of the big four. So I took that decision pretty early to say, okay. I'm not, I'm not going to pursue a career in tennis. There's an opportunity for me to do something great, which is go and be, go to medical school, be a physician and, and do some great things. So that was the reason not to pursue that. But I, I, everything I do, I think about from, from an athlete's mentality. And so does my co-founder, Jordan. Um, he's a very, very good rugby player and annoyingly good at golf still. So, so what, what translates to surgery? There's a number of things. Both of them are physical pursuits. So it, you, you can have, you can have tennis intelligence and you can have surgical intelligence. That's all about my, my understanding of the craft. But the physical pursuit side, it really, it, it, it's black and white. It's the, same, it's the same concept. Hours and hours and hours of muscle memory development and developing as close to realistic muscle memory as you possibly can. I'm sure we'll get into this in terms of how we, how we do that. But, but there's, and there's a couple of great books on this about the idea of the transferable skills from training like an athlete, performing like an athlete, to, to training like a surgeon. And so tell us a bit more. How, does, how do you do that at Innovus? Yeah, so... The, the way we view this is 
when we think about training for a sport, I'll keep, I'll keep using the tennis analogy. We can use anything. You can break you can break down the way we train for a sport into different drills, into different ways of training. So you're not going to use the same drill every time to learn how to do tennis. So let's let's think about that. Forehands cross court, you're going to use some cones and a different type of drill. Backhands down the line, you'll use a different type of drill. Volleys, serves, you're going to break it all down. That's when you're learning the basics or the fundamentals of it. Same with surgery. You can break that down into basic surgical skills. So that's basic suturing, basic hand ties, etc. We don't necessarily use all of the same, as I say, the same drills, the same cones or whatever it may well be. And we shouldn't be doing that for surgery. So the way we view surgery is there's a continuum of needs when it comes to, to training and, and simulation. And that continuum, you can actually think about it as, as pre-learning. So that's what I, that's the surgical intelligence or the game intelligence piece. So how do I, how do I understand about how I perform this procedure? What are the complications that could happen? What are the steps that I need to perform? Not physically, just mentally. That's mental rehearsal, surgical intelligence. That's the pre-learning piece. Then you've got the actual physical learning. And when we think about that physical learning of this physical pursuit, we break that down at universe into a continuum from what we call low fidelity into medium fidelity into high fidelity. We don't think that there is necessarily a one size that fits all. And that is a journey as it would be with, with anyone learning a sport or any other skill. So at Innovus, for example, if I, if I share this with you, we have a, a portfolio of laparoscopic simulators. We have six simulators in that portfolio because we know that depending on if a surgeon comes to us and says, I want to do surgical training, we will ask all the right questions. We will talk about what would you like to achieve? What type of training? Um, would you like to do full procedures, basic tasks? Do you want to do that with someone operating the camera and put you under duress like you would do in theater? Once we've got to the answers of that, we'll have a fit from one of those six simulators. But if we only had one as a business, we'd only be serving one part of that training continuum when it comes to hands-on skills training. And one thing I didn't touch on at the start of this, because I got too carried away talking about selling suites in the playground, was our mission of the business is to become the world's partner for surgical training. So we're not going to deliver on that mission unless we have that continuum, not just in laparoscopic surgery sorted, but all other surgical types. And at the moment, we are focusing on the, the physical skills piece. I, I mentioned there's pre-learning, cognitive, like surgical intelligence, physical skill. Then there's the interruptive piece. Learning doesn't stop until it, once you get to the, the game day, as it were, which is operating on the patient. Our view is there should be a lot more learning going on in the simulated environment before we get there. And I hear you can take these simulators home. Is, is that sort of part of the pre-learning or is that sort of closer to game, game day? Or how does the training at home work at Innovus? Yeah, and th this comes back to, I'll, I'll answer that, but I, I want to come back to when we were really drilling down into this, when we were looking at the, the, the problems here. This is, this is 2011, 2012, we're looking at this going, okay, yes, we want people to train like athletes. We need to give them the infrastructure and we need to give them a sensible infrastructure that allows them to do what I've just said. But, but more importantly, we need to shift early learning away from the patient bedside. That was fine 200 years ago um, when there was no technology to replace operating on patients. There is, and we looked at the technology and said, well, hang on, if there's already simulators, why has there not been a huge shift? Why, why are we not, as surgeons, on day one coming in and our surgical training programs are saying, before you go and touch the patient, you must do this many of this procedure to this objectively measured standard so that we know you're safe. Not unlike the airline industry, okay? And we realized there were four main things that stopped that or were stopping that with existing technologies. So first of all, the existing technology is super expensive. They happen to use virtual reality as their sort of bedrock technology, very expensive to develop, super expensive to deploy. 
So you're looking at technologies at $120,000, $150,000 for a single system. Yes, well-funded programs can maybe afford a couple of them, but we're trying to train thousands of surgeons. You can't put those on one simulator. So that cost leads into the second issue, which is access. So it's this old school sort of mainframe style of, of system that we had, almost like IBM. We're going to put these big systems into, into big areas, simulation centers, but that's not where the surgical trainees are. Surgical trainees are at home. They're in theaters, they're on the wards, and they're traveling around to different conferences. They want something that's more accessible, more scalable. And then the third one, and I will answer your question, Dan, I promise, but I think this is really important to give context to the, to the listeners and hopefully some value. The, the third issue here was, and I talked about it earlier, VR as the modality for training, that uses software and motors to tell us what haptics should feel like, so how soft tissue should feel. That's okay for macroscopic haptics when we're thinking about turbulence in a plane. When we're thinking about the subtleties of a five mil vessel versus a one mil vessel versus some meso appendix versus some bowel, it's so difficult. And actually, we looked at that and said that's probably the single most important thing that's stopping the surgical fraternity from shifting into the simulated environment. Final almost connectivity, integration into the daily lives of um, surgical trainees. And that's what brings me on to my answer of your question, which was coming all the way back to our our, our portfolio of simulators, we got six there. We said, well, let's look at this like Apple look at it. They, they, took, they took a technology, I, IBM mainframe computer, and they made the technology almost as good, well, it took them a while, but imagine fast forwarding to the technology where they're making super powerful computers. They put those in the hands of people initially, and then they put them in the pockets of people. And they completely changed this narrative of we'll sell, we'll sell a few thousand of these systems for X amount per year down to we'll sell hundreds of millions, if not billions of these to people all over the world, improve access to them, but the price point will come down. And that's the approach we took when it comes to take-home simulators. So we call them take-home, but you could call them accessible or, or highly deployable simulators, which we allow people to access from anywhere. So the important thing then is um, that the training experience is not uh, degraded. So it's the same training experience, whether or not you're on one of our take-home systems in, the, in your home or on the road, as to the systems that you'd use in the simulation center. Elliot, I'd like to go back to the VR piece um, and, and kind of compare what, what you guys offer. And the accessibility is huge, right? I mean, that's the downside of VR right now. Not everybody has an Oculus headset. You know, accessibility is limited. Haptics are limited. I, I heard an interview with uh, Zuckerberg on Tim Ferriss a few months ago where he was talking about haptics and how we're, we're early days. We're like black and white television with haptics, and you think about the evolution of video resolution and what the screens that we're looking at right now, like that's it's going to take time to get there, right? But that's that's the downside of VR simulation is like you're kind of stuck with just you know a screen like imaging, and you're not really getting a feel for it. Like now we have these controllers, but they're very limited. And what you guys have is basically hardware that you can put your hands on, you can get an idea of that with your to-do screen. It's very similar to what you have in the OR. And it's affordable and accessible and you can, anybody can go online and buy it. I mean, that's pretty incredible, but I just want to hear your, a little bit more, let's explain a little bit more on the VR piece versus what you guys yeah. do. Yeah. yeah thanks, Aaron. And, and look, there's, there's a couple of things we talk about when we think about building businesses. I'm sure we'll get onto a bit more of the journey. We'll talk about patient urgency and um, I'll explain what I mean by that. But the, what, what I'm going to talk about here is inventive execution. I mentioned at the top of this, I'm very lucky to have a, uh, a very inventive co-founder CTO who thinks very, very laterally. So he's not, he's not just thinking, let me, let me look at the technologies that already exist 
and find a home for them. What we think about is what is our problem? So problem first, and then we'll develop the technologies to solve that. And that's the approach we've taken. I'd love to, I'd love to get into this because um, we're very excited about it. So you're quite right, Aaron. We've already spoken about the limitations of the traditional VR, which is the mainframe VR, where they're using really big systems to create relative, relative haptics. There are some haptics there, but they're really not quite there for, especially for the price. Now we're seeing lots more of this, these companies come in with the, the Oculus. And this is part of the reason why I mentioned the bit before we get to hands-on training. The way we see the, 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 the simulations that are using Oculus um, or the immersive stuff is that is brilliant for pre-learning. So they allow you to work through the steps of a procedure and understand the theory of it. Right. We are focused on how do we allow you to as closely as possible simulate the real surgical environment right. at scale. So this is how we do it. We use what we call sort of novel headset-free AR. So the way this works is we put soft tissues inside a box. Those soft tissues can be appendix, they could be bowel, they could be gallbladder, they can be vaginal vault, whatever they may well be. They are simulated soft tissues. And you make those on with 3D printing? We in, uh, injection mold them effectively, oh, but 3D print, the 3D printing we use a huge amount as well. And, We'll, we'll, get we'll be that. at real risk of, of nerding out over 3D printing, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we, we, we have four different, we have four different modalities of 3D printing, which we, which we use. So we'll use the 3D printers to create molds, but we'll also use the 3D printers to create some products as well. The limitation of 3D printing in soft tissue is the, is scalability. Um, it's, it's a slow process. If you're 3D printing in silicone or any other soft tissues, it drives up the cost of a per unit cost. And, and it doesn't allow you to do them at really big scale. So we're churning these things out in the, in the tens of thousands because we want high volume training coming back to the sporting analogy. Practicing once doesn't get Roger Federer to a 24 year career. He's practicing for hours and hours and hours and hours a day. So we need our surgeons to be able to do that in a way that's cost effective. So we use a slightly different modality, but we do use 3D printing in the journey. Coming back then. So we, we put these soft tissues in a box. They're incredibly realistic. They provide all of our haptics. So we are not trying to simulate haptics. We have what we call natural haptics. So you put real instruments. If we think about the laparoscopic portfolio, real laparoscopic instruments into a box and they're operating on these soft tissues. The cool thing about the soft tissues is we have 28 different variants of the soft tissue. So we can use um, standard instruments on it, cold cutting instruments. We can use bipolar energy. We can use any device on the market to operate on those tissues. So now what we're thinking about is not only as a resident or a, or a surgical trainee, how do I perform this procedure and feel the, the natural haptic? How do I perform this procedure with a specific device that I would be using in the theater on the day? So now not only are we talking about practicing with a tennis racket in your hand instead of the, the Wii Fit controller, hmm. we're talking about practicing with the exact tennis racket that you would use on game day. So we've completely flipped the narrative on its head of virtual reality is the way to train. No. What's the most important thing? Physical pursuit, let's nail haptics. Our haptics are nailed with natural haptics, soft tissues and instruments. That's the classic box trainer style model. It's worked for years. And there's lots of evidence to show that box trainer simulation actually drives the learning curve quicker than VR. However, there's a lot of really important parts of VR that you mustn't miss. Immersion. So immersing you in the environment of does this look realistic? Number one, the ability to create complications. So, so now we're thinking about how do we make the right decisions along the way. So this is interruptive decision-making. And then the, the final piece is objective measurement of how well people are performing, which is something that the, the box trainer models have, have had a drawback to. So 
And, and just to be clear, the other really cool thing that I'm excited about is all of our imaging, you mentioned it, Aaron, but I just want to, to, be, to be clear on this. All of our imaging is streamed directly to a laptop screen or the screen of the simulator because surgeons are not standing in the theater wearing headsets. Again, we have to, we have to make it as realistic as we possibly can. So we stream these to these laptops and they work on off the shelf laptops, which credit to our engineers shouldn't happen. They've done an unbelievable job to optimize this technology to make it work. Sitting on top of that AR environment where we build digital environments around the soft tissues to make it immersive, which I should have mentioned. Sitting on top of that is a digital surgery platform. And that digital surgery platform is capturing live video. It's capturing objective data on the instrument. So how well am I handling the instruments objectively? Distance traveled, speed, acceleration, all these metrics. And it's sucking all of that data, both objective, objective and, um, and video data into a learning management platform that people can then collaborate on, share and deliver certification. Very cool. Very cool. So just, just recap for us, Elliot. You said there's three main things that augmented reality training can deliver. Connectivity, soft, real, real haptics. And can you just remind me what the third was? So the way we look at it is it come, it comes back to those, comes back to those things we were solving. Yeah. So. The pre-existing technology is too expensive, difficult to access. The haptics were not great. So functionality wasn't great and lack of connectivity. So we've made a technology into, to Aaron's point because of the way we manufacture these. By the way, we have a whole factory. I, I forgot to mention this. This is the lad, uh, the two lads that were independently selling sweets in the playground. One went to medical school, one, one went to engineering. We now have this factory churning out all this technology in the UK. So. Because we're the manufacturer and we control a lot of the supply chain and the verticals, we're able to keep the prices down. So we've taken a technology that was $120,000 and we're delivering it for sub 50 and, and our rate, and rate goes below that. That's a massive step change in cost. And the accessibility piece, of course, the take home, but because we use the same technology in the take home systems, it provides the same high level, high fidelity training experience. So that's natural haptics augmented reality yeah. environments, and then objective measurement of how well people are doing. And that leads into the functionality piece. So um, that's the approach we've taken to solve the major issues. So you've discussed um, a lot about you know selling these uh, devices at scale. Who do you sell them to? Do you sell them to hospitals? Is, is a surgeon able to buy them? Um, how, can, how can our American colleagues get, our hands, get their hands on them? Yeah. So when we think about this, if we think about our, without selling to, uh, to, to businesses, our, our customer segmentation. So it comes back to, we have a very clearly stated mission. Uh, again, I've stated it once. I'll keep stating it because it's so important to us. Our mission is to become the world's partner for surgical training. And before I answer who, who's buying these, I think it's just important to explain what does that mean? What, what that means is we will have achieved our mission when a patient is going for an operation and they turn around to their surgeon and they say, how did you learn how to do this operation? And what did you use to learn it on? And they will say, oh, well, of course I use the Innovus platform. And by the way, I had to do this many in the simulated environment to this standard before I came anywhere near you. That's a multi, that's a multi-decade mission that we're on. And then when we think about who we're addressing as the customers, we have, we use our mission to drive that, our customer segmentation. So we do sell these, as Aaron mentioned, we sell them directly to surgeons. So we have the opportunity for really motivated young surgeons who are exploring the, 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 um, the specialty to buy their own simulators and start their own practice ahead of time. So. That's something that we, that we pioneered, this take-home laparoscopic portfolio of simulators. But then we sell into the residency programs, the hospital systems, the universities, the undergraduate space, um, and any other professional education society. So that could be colleges, societies, et cetera, involved in, in postgraduate surgical education. Final one is we sell these to device companies. And I mentioned before, you can put any device you like into our platform and use it. 
So if you're Olympus, J&J, Striker, Medtronic, you can put your devices into our systems. We will track those devices so you can get objective measurements on how well your professional education is going, how well does your device work for this procedure, and that's been super powerful. So those are our main segments, and the reason we we don't ignore one or the other comes back to our mission. We can't become the world's partner for surgical training if we're ignoring a major part of the the industry that are delivering surgical training. The device companies deliver a huge amount of professional education and drive a lot of surgical training. It's important that we partner with them and, and provide them technologies that adds value to their activity. Then what we look to do is take this partnership model further where we'll say, this device company over here is, is invested in this, ta- this technology. And I'll use an example here in the UK. I'm sure they won't mind me using it. But Olympus here in the UK rolled out our platforms for all their national training programs. And they were going and delivering these training programs locally. And the local programs were saying, well, when you go away, we're going to leave, this technology will be gone. And so to answer your question, how do our American colleagues get hold of it? First of all, how do the UK colleagues get hold of it? We have a commercial team on the ground, regional managers, they will go in, work with an Olympus, for example, and then they, they'll work with the local programs and say, okay, now you can buy this and keep it going because it's not about this one isolated training experience that's going to add any value. You need to have access to it every day. And I'm really excited to say um, that we've just done the same in the US. So we've just hired a team across the United States. So we now have regional managers representing Inovus directly all across the USA. And they're doing exactly the same. So they're working with the device companies and they're working with the residency programs so that we can combine those resources, leverage any investment from either one, and make sure that there is this consistent, relentless approach to really high quality surgical training. Elliot, what I loved about going to your website was up top, there's a shop tab. And I was like, wait, what? It's, I, I click on shop and I could buy any of the simulators. I was like, my jaw dropped because, you know, we've had a number of surgical, simu- mostly in the VR space, people on, you know, and companies on the show. And I've talked to a number of them, but they're all just so pre consumer and uh you know they're 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 like they're still early stage and you know clearly the vr space is still early stage but you can't even get your hands on anything i mean the closest thing i've been able to do was there was a company that um they were doing some uh teaching and it was remote teaching and they would send you an oculus headset and you could wear it and you could watch the case like you're in the or but there's no there's nothing hands-on you're you're just a passive observer in the OR, which is, is a neat experience. But, you know, after I, I have an issue with VR because I get motion sickness after about five minutes. Like I can't have that thing on my head for very long. And uh, I can't even play video games on it because it's just not, yes. it, it's the experience is not ideal for me. And I, that's the complaint that um, I've heard from a lot of people, uh, both in gaming and, uh, and, and with education and simulation. So I, I just want to say like, that's the neatest thing about Innovus and uh, is that you can buy this today and and whether it be for your training program, for you know you, you know to try out new devices or just to have at home and like play on you know practice on. Like you said, I think the tennis analogy or sports analogy is perfect. And and what you mentioned about you know playing tennis on Wii is completely different from having the actual racket in your hand and getting out there and hitting balls. And, and that's, I think, where the VR space is. We're still in like that video game Wii stage where it's like, okay, it's great to, to teach the steps, but at the end of the day, you got to get your hands on this to actually get true reps in, right? Yeah, I, I, Aaron, I totally agree. And, and, and look, we're, we're, we're quite bullish on this because we're sort of 
we've differentiated ourselves entirely. But and there's and there's two different types of the VR. I think it's important to mention. There's this like mainframe VR. The, 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 the technology that's been around sort of 30 or 40 years, these big systems that are trying very hard to give you haptics. And then there's the head, there's the headset VR, which regardless of what's said, there isn't really haptics there. Um, and, and let's think about this. The way I view that is that actually those headset VR plays, yeah, they're very good for marketing, very shiny. And as you say, like they're, they're pretty cool. They, they can have their drawbacks, but let's say that nobody got motion sick with those. Where they sit, for our, in our opinion, is they sit in that earlier part of the continuum. So really, they're almost digitalizing the textbooks. So the old school way we would learn surgery is we're going to read about this in a textbook, and then we're going to stand next to our, our mentor, showing us how to do it in theater. That's the old school way. The new school way is we're all, we're all very tech savvy as, 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 as people from sort of millennial, millennial down, but, but also millennial up. You've got some very tech savvy older surgeons and, we're not looking to learn from textbooks now and Gen Z and millennials. They're looking to learn from digital technology. So the, the VR headsets, they are almost just digitalizing the textbook. Here is the concept of this operation. Here are the procedures. Here are the steps to do it. It's just in a more immersive way. But to call that simulation or to you, to say, I'm, I'm now safe and I've learned how to do the operation. That, that, that for us is, is no, because going back to the Wii Fit analogy, this is the, the tongue in cheek piece, which is you could be. You could be thinking of striking forehands beautifully on the Wii Fit, absolutely ripping them. If you go and do that same thing on the tennis court, you will splay the ball right over the back fence. And we, we can't have that. So yeah, VR headsets, I think there's a long way to go. I think where they will sit is in that pre, that pre continuum. So the continuum of we're learning how to do the procedure and the steps, but the big chunk then of learning how to operate is this physical pursuit. And I, I think we're, we're truly differentiated there. And what about technologies when you're in game day? So you've talked a lot about, you know, digitizing a textbook, then moving forward to augmented reality and using these boxes. But is there sort of a role to play in, I don't know, using holograms or uh, something to that effect to help the surgeon perform when they're on, on the tennis court? Yeah, absolutely. Good job we're only using the one sports night. Sometimes I bounce around <laughs> to different sports. Yeah. It was incredibly no, tennis People is just perfect. Like, we've lost, yeah. yeah, we've lost the plot now. What, what, what are you talking <laughs> about? Yeah. You, so yeah, you're quite, quite right down. So yeah. So pre-learning, how do I do this procedure theoretically? The, the textbook type, type of learning or the, or, or the, the digitalized textbook. Then there's a lot, there should be lots and lots and lots of hands-on pre, pre-patient simulation based training. Then we've got the piece in theater. Every time someone steps on a tennis court and plays a map, they are going to come away with a lot of learning points and we shouldn't lose that in theater. And we're not saying that the traditional approach to, tra- to training surgeons doesn't have any merit. It certainly does. We, we just want to improve that by saying from a safety and actually an efficiency perspective, we should be doing a lot more in that, that pre-surgeon environment, which I'll come back to actually in a moment. But yeah, interruptively, then we have technologies that we need to be seeing in theater. So this is your digital surgery platforms. This is an ability to collect insights while we're operating because, because previously, surgical theatre has traditionally been a black box. There's not been a huge amount of data coming out of them. We go in, it's all a bit mysterious. Um, patients get looked after by these incredibly courageous and skilled people. And, and then we come back out again. So we totally agree with this concept and, and the digital surgery space is super exciting. And there are so many really amazing technologies coming into this space in terms of guiding the surgeon interoperatively to make it safer. That's almost like having a coach on court with you 
to say, you just want to adjust your forehand a little bit. The, the guys at Active Surgical, I think, the te- I don't know if you've had those guys on before, Todd and the team there, unbelievable technology. Just incredible. If you haven't had them on, I, I thoroughly recommend you get Todd on. Which um, uh, which company? Active. Active Surgical. Active Surgical. Active, yes. Yeah, Todd, Todd Eusen is their CEO. Br- br- absolutely superb piece of technology and a great team. That's something for guiding the surgeons interruptively for safety. That's like having a coach there. But what about collecting the game tape? And what about collecting your metrics? So we do a lot of game tape and metric collection in in our in our in our platform. That's one of the big differentiators for us. As well as it feels exactly like you're doing it well, as, as near as to real life as you possibly can get with these natural haptics. But we're allowing people to review their their training experiences get written feedback on how well they perform and objective feedback. And they can play almost the practice match. So you can do a full lap coli on our platform, record it, and then go back and watch that. So you're watching the game tape from the practice game. But to your question, uh, what about the game tape from, from, from actual game day when I'm in, when I'm in the game? And that's the interruptive piece. So we totally feel that's somewhere that needs to be addressed and it is being addressed. So that's capturing the footage. I'll stop in a second there. Sorry. Capturing the footage from, um, what's going on. That's capturing objective data on how well people are performing because you need to marry both those together to truly tell someone how well they've performed because you can see it both objectively or just on the video, but sometimes you need to marry both those together. And then can you have someone to guide you through? I'll pause there, Aaron, because I know you, I know you've got something. No, no, I, I, cause I, I know Deanna's probably thinking the same thing I am of theater, uh, with, uh, Tamir Wolf. Have you talked to those guys? Yeah. 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 Cause they're, I mean, they're collecting basically game tape of the game, right? And then creating the surgical intelligence platform to get that feedback. And one point that Eric Ganworker brought up on our interview was, what do you do about all the surgeons who don't want their data collected, right? That they're like, I know I'm good with the OR being a black box. I don't want you to know about, you know, how I do things. Are you getting resistance? Are you seeing any kind of resistance like that with collecting this data? Not in the simulated environment, which is where we primarily sit at the moment. So our technologies are all in that simulated environment right now. Yeah, we have a digital surgery platform that, that's, that it just sits in the simulated environment because that's the big bit that we want to solve. Yeah, I think because we're there, I think we're getting less resistance. So we're getting some really high volume data, like really high volume data. People are really engaging yeah. with it, um, which is really useful. But I see, I see that, I can see that problem happening. And I think that's where as, as an industry both as, as the providers of technology, but as an industry, as physicians and surgeons, I think we need to work really, really hard and together to change the narrative around that, which is that we're not doing it to bash you. We're not doing it to say you're not good. We're doing it so that you can be more elite. You're already elite. You wouldn't be here if you weren't elite, but how do we make you more elite? And, and, and that's why we keep talking about the sporting analogies, because it's not about saying, uh, we're going to use this to regulate you or so that you can't do the procedures. We're going to say, you're already, you're already 90%. Let's get you to 90, 94, 95, 96%. And I, I, that's going to take a long time. And it comes back to what I was saying. Uh, when we achieve our mission of the world's partner for surgical training, it's a multi-decade process. Yeah. And that's why tennis yeah. is such a great analogy because tennis is like a lifelong sport, you know, and that's that, you know, we're a lifelong career uh, in medicine. And, you know, we always talk about how athletes, CEOs, they all have lifelong coaches. And for some reason, when we finish training, we go out and we're like, we're like, nah, I'm good on my own for a while. And that it just doesn't make any sense. Like we should all have, yeah, we have mentors, 
but we really should have coaches, right? And this is that's where I think the surgical intelligence piece comes into play. It's kind of like your virtual coach. It's been so great to hear all about Innerverse and virtual reality, but I wanted to bring it back to you. Can you tell us a little bit more about that transition moving away from medicine? What was it like? I hear, I think a lot of our listeners, you know, have similar thoughts, um, have had a great ideas. Uh, they don't really know how to put them into action or how to make that transition away from a clinical career. Was this, you know, one moment in time? Was it a gradual transition? Can you talk us through it? Yeah, happy to. Again, I'll come. It's the reason I want to lay that story because I, I knew this question was going to be coming. So let's think about this. I, I'm very, I, I count myself as incredibly lucky that I don't come from a long dynasty of physicians. Now, you could look at it two ways. The, the level of pride of me getting into medical school was absurd. There were all sorts of family trees to see if there was someone that got into medical school previously in our family. No, that had never happened. We're all super proud of this guy that somehow managed to do this. We just thought he'd end up being a tennis coach. No, nothing wrong with that <laughs> at all, by the way. But um, Or a poker you know, player. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, or a sweet, sweet salesman, candy salesman. <laughs> There's two ways you can look at it. I didn't have the pressure of being from this, this big dynasty, but I also, you could have imagined that there was pressure to say, well, that's amazing. So when you turn around and say, by the way, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave to go and start making boxes in a, in a, in a garage, there, there could have been some eyebrows. I was super lucky that I've got a family that just said, look, as long as you're enjoying what you're doing, that's the, the only thing we all care about. So that's, that's the only answer from us. So that's number one. When it comes to the, the process of graduating myself out of medicine, I, I still see, I still identify and see myself as, as a physician, as a surgeon, as someone that cares for patients, but I haven't done any practice for a couple of years now. And I'll talk you through that journey. So business was founded at medical school. We started with 200, uh, for the US audience, $250. That's what we started with. Our first product was sold from $250 worth of investment. And then we just ground it out from there. And while we were doing that, I was finishing medical school. I was working as a junior doc. So in the UK, we, we have something called the foundation program, foundation training. It's like the internship, but it's two years long and you rotate around different specialties. I primarily just did surgical specialties for two years. Also in the UK, there's been a big thing that's called, we call it F3. We are probably one of the first generations of, of doctors that are starting to do this. So yeah, I think Diana's doing an F3. It's not an official thing, but effectively you have F1 and F2 are your foundation year one and foundation year two, like the internship, which is two years long. Everyone was taking F3s and I looked at it and said, well, I've been growing this business as my side hustle out of a garage for the last four years. All my mates are going off to Australia to have a jolly such work for, for a year. I think it would be pretty well spent to at least take a year full time at this. It's pretty de-risked. And I, I already had the support of a, a ridiculously supportive family. So I didn't need to worry about any pressures there, which really helps. So I came out of full-time clinical practice after those first two years. But then I worked clinically five years. So we, we continue to build the business alongside me working clinically at the weekends. I do some nights, do some weeks here. The main reason was I really enjoy looking after patients and I really enjoy clinical practice. So for us and for me, it was a real staged process of coming out. In my mind, I still don't think I've come out. But I've, I was um, touched a patient for, for two years now. I'll tell you the reason why I stopped. We were, we were starting to really build our, our international presence. And I was starting to do a lot more international travel. And I realized that if I was coming off a plane and then going into a, a weekend on call, and if I made a mistake, which had an adverse outcome for a patient because I was tired, that was really unfair on them because I was really only doing my clinical work because I enjoyed it. It was almost like the hobby. It was the way I could shut off my, uh, the, the business brain, the innervous brain. 
so really I got to that point saying that's selfish for me to carry on. I hadn't, I hadn't done that. I just, I preempted that potentially happening. So that was the reason why, why I've come out. And I think the other thing to say here, I wasn't, it wasn't like I was working 50, 50, I was working like 70, 80 hours a week in the business. And then at the weekends here and there, sort of every couple of weekends or so I'd go and do an on-call, keep my clinical hand in. The reason I say that is for, and, and this is where I hope some value comes for the, for the listeners. So there's some clinical entrepreneurs or some clinical innovators listening to this. If you truly believe in your mission and you should have, you should have a very clearly defined purpose, mission, vision, values, those should be really dialed in. It can take a while, but you could get them dialed in if you're going to do something properly. Focus is so key. And we as clinicians and physicians and medics and surgeons, we traditionally do loads and loads of different things because we've always had to, to, to stand out. But if you're going to go and create a business or some change making that is really going to stick and really get proper impact, you, you just have to, you just have to go all in and focus on that. So you can only choose one sport. Quite, quite right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You, you, you've got to choose the one sport. You can be great at loads and loads of different sports or, or naturally gifted at them. And then you become average at all of them because you're trying to do too many things. So, yeah. so I, I will repeat this because I think hopefully this is where the real value, rather than me, um, sort of just giving my, my views on, on how we should train surgeons and using all these analogies, hopefully this adds real value to the audience, which is, and I'll repeat it. If you're going, if you're going to either build something alongside your clinical career or, or you want to leave or do something that you think is going to have a real impact, you really, really have to focus. And that can be doing the way I did. I did it for almost seven years of building this business. I was at medical school and, and working clinically, but I basically did it full time building the business. Mm. The other bits were almost like my hobby. So I had to, I had to make allowances elsewhere. I couldn't then have three or four other side hustles. I clearly was no longer selling sweets in the playground. I wasn't washing up pots at the weekend. You, you have, you have to dial that in because otherwise you're just going to be very busy. It will all sound great, but there won't be that real impact and that substance underneath what you're doing. And to achieve this focus, what, what helped you? Was it, was it mentors? You know, that quite often comes up on the show. Yeah. Mentorship is, it's huge. Every, everyone, everyone's got them. And it's, again, it's just left, it's just levels. When you think, again, we'll go back to sports, you go back to surgeons. There's these levels. You can be, you can be this really high level of your sport in your, in your region, but then you've got people above you in your country, above you in your continent, above you in the world. So there's always people that have got more knowledge, more experience that, that you can draw on. I think it's really important here. And I think we're quite good at this as physicians to be, to be coached because we have this thirst for knowledge, but we should always be seeking mentors out. And that's what, that's what we've done. So we have a, a pretty diverse network of, of mentors, but one of our main mentors, for example, when we raised venture capital the first time round, we ran a process for our non-exec chairman. And the person that came out top on that process, completely objective process, was one of our mentors. And he is huge on focus. So it really helps when you're all rowing the same direction. So if I was someone that was like, no, I, I, I want to run Innovus, but I also want this I want this other business over here. I want to work clinically three days a week and I want to run this charity. That would infuriate him and we would butt heads and it wouldn't work. So I think when you're looking for mentors, you want people to challenge you, but you, you also can't be too polarized. Otherwise you will fall out. And, and ultimately that's, that's what we've been very lucky at. Finding the right mentors to, to come around us, challenges in the right way, but also make sure that we're wired relatively sim similarly because if I was also incredibly focused, but everyone else around me in the team was scattergun and trying to do a million things, 
that would frustrate me and that wouldn't work. So it's not just the mentors, but it's the team you build around you as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And earlier you mentioned that there was, you know, a book about sports that's been a great inspiration towards perhaps maybe achieving this focus and achieving that athlete m- mindset as a as a surgeon. Would you mind sharing what book that was? Yeah, Skill by Christopher Ahmed. Brilliant. I, I, and it just, it just sort of sums up all those analogies we've been talking about. And look, I only use sport as an analogy because I was a sportsman. It's easy for me to think about, but we have physicians and, and, and surgeons who are incredibly talented musicians, artists, anything that you've done where it requires an incredible level of skill and commitment, you can use the same analogy. It's all the same stuff. Keep turning up every day. Keep holding yourself to really high standards. Mm. Work really, really hard. And basically that's that's what all of this boils down to Th- those are actually the core values internally for us as a business when we're hiring people to come into the business we look for great attitude great excellence and incredibly high work ethic because those are the things that would make you successful in a sport in a in music in art and and, and medicine so yeah couldn't agree more it's about being talent it's not about being talented it's about being trainable correct yeah if you have talent as well it, it also helps uh, but yeah you're quite right we look for the other things first so Elliot, a couple of questions. You were talking about industry before and how we have it's important to partner up with industry. And I, I completely agree. That's one of like the things we do at, at Backtables. We um we like to talk about the Backtables kind of founded upon discussing uh devices, new devices, new procedures. Because every time something comes out, you gotta learn, you gotta train on it. It's not like, you know, some of these devices didn't exist when I was in training. Somebody's gotta teach you how to do it. And usually it's the device company, right? Uh, even the academic guys got to learn from somebody and they everybody learns from industry. So I wanted to find out though with the simulator has, because what, what we found with working with industry, especially like marketing department sales, is they're not always, they're, they're, they're kind of conservative, a little bit old fashioned in how they do things. Has it been, how is it getting traction with industry and working with them? Yeah. So, so I think this is a, this is a really interesting question. So yeah, with, with the, as you say, relatively traditional approach to marketing sales of, 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 of devices, not necessarily been digitalized before. And I think where, where we've certainly found an advantage is we, we're easing strategics into this and we're giving them a sense of, um, almost normality in that we're saying to the device companies. And, and by the way, important part of this is the robotics. I know 95% of minimally invasive procedures are still done, not robotically. But we understand that that's potentially where the future is going. So our platforms also work with any robotic platform. And so what we say to these providers, either of robotics or straight stick devices, is you can put your devices in our simulator. It's just the old analog way of doing that, which wasn't that engaging for surgeons. We've now digitalized. So now you get all of the positives of this, the, the funky VR stuff that actually is engaging and can differentiate you. But now you can put your devices into something that does that. Now, the other thing we found is because of the way we capture objective metrics, it's been really, really interesting for a lot of device companies to say, well, we've been doing years and thousands of hours of training with our devices in the simulated environment in an analog space. We haven't captured any data on that. We haven't captured data on how effective it is. We haven't captured data on actually how well are people performing these procedures we haven't captured data on on complication rates or anything in this safe simulated environment and and this is the big one for us which many of the device companies here in the uk and, and hopefully more and more in the us now are expanding there 
they're looking at this going, this is unbelievable. We, we're now able to capture a huge amount of data on our actual instruments in this space that we're already putting money into and spending time working in. So we've, I think that's been a real, it, it's been a real light bulb moment for a lot of device companies, which is they see the VR and they go, okay, that's nice. It's cool for marketing. It's engaging, but where is that intangible value? Uh, like where is the, int- the intrinsic value of what we're looking at? And I think that the way we've, we've approached it certainly has done that for them. One, one last question as we wrap up on the hour here. You know, I'm a vascular and interventional radiologist and uh, looking at your uh, website, um, I, I love the all the laparoscopic uh, stuff that you guys have offered, but anything on the horizon in the vascular space, uh, whether, you know, uh, some sort of catheter simulation or vascular simulation, anything that uh, we can look out for, even biopsies. I mean, Deanna and I were looking at the robotic uh, biopsy systems when we were at this conference a couple months ago, Circe. And those are look pretty cool, um, but yeah, uh, anything in the in the vascular interventional space. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's really easy for me to answer the questions of like, what have you got coming, or, and what are your future plans? And I, I've already mentioned it a couple of times. I'll mention it again. Our mission is to become the world's partner for surgical training. So there's the verticals we spoke about. Those verticals are low, medium, high fidelity in any one of the horizontals. So we're already in laparoscopic training and and hysteroscopy. Those are our current verticals. Our plan is to be in every single vertical. We, we, we're not shy about saying that. Okay. Um, that's orthopedics, it's ENT, it's neurosurgery, it's vascular surgery. For vascular and endovascular, watch this space. There could be some exciting stuff coming. Uh, and I may well talk to you offline, Aaron, about, yeah. uh, uh, about that. But, but yeah, a- absolutely. We're, we're not shy about saying our plan is to recreate and take our, our differentiated approach of headset-free augmented reality, high-fidelity training, which sits atop our vertical, and then the rest of our vertical and pull that down the horizontal into different specialties. So yeah, that's, that's our, that's our plan over the next couple of years. Well, that sounds great, Elliot. I, I really have enjoyed this conversation. I love what you guys are doing in the medical education space and simulation space. Um, I'd like personally, and I mentioned this before, getting my hands on things, trying them out with my own hands. And so I'm excited to, um, you know, actually, if I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I'm in Paris. And uh, so I would actually really like, are you in London? Uh, we're in the Northwest. So um, I'm in Manchester and the business is based in St. Helens. Okay. Well, I, it, I, it might warrant a, a visit to uh, check out some of your simulators uh, while I'm while I'm in the side of the pond. So uh, look, or if there's any simulators in Paris, maybe you can direct me that way. And, and uh, me and my wife, my wife's an ENT, so I know she would be really into this as well. Yeah, I think well, there's, there's there's simulators in 76 countries, so I'm, I'm sure there's a couple knocking around in Paris. Okay. Um, but we, we'd love we'd love to have you as a guest um, in Avis and and show you what we do. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of fun there's a lot of fun technology to look at in the factory as well. Oh so, yeah, um, that would be we'll cool. Probably spend 10 minutes looking at the simulators and then four hours looking at all the toys in the factory. Yeah, I'm sure there's some pretty cool 3D yeah. printers in there too. Absolutely. Um, I right, well, <laughs> thank you to Deanna for co-hosting. Elliot, really appreciate your time and coming on the show. And I look forward to hopefully meeting you one day in person here soon. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, and Eric Yamaker. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson. 
Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Anne Dang, social media and PR by Chi Dang, and Dana Parker. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.